and I are just back from Victoria, where we spoke at a Family Life Canada marriage conference, and we're going to be speaking again in Quebec in April. Uh, we just love doing these. We've been doing them for about 12 years. Um, so much fun. This conference, we gave a new talk on resolving conflict. It's one that we used to give years ago, but they've changed up the talks. And so for the last few years, we've been doing communication instead of conflict. So this was a new talk for us. And we had to prepare it. And it got me thinking again about some of the things that I talked about in Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. And so I want to share one big thing with you today on this podcast. So here we are in the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Gregoire, and I'm so glad you've joined me, where we like to talk about how to make marriage into a passionate adventure and not a big to-do list. And part of that passionate adventure is to feel like you're connected. It's very hard to feel like you're connected when you're constantly having conflict. But I find that the way that we talk about conflict can sometimes combine things that shouldn't really be combined. So let me let me explain. When we started doing our marriage conferences 12 13 years ago, we were given this curriculum that we had to teach. And the curriculum on conflict walked you through all of these things like how to say, how to express yourself well, how to listen, how to walk through forgiveness. And it just made everything seem so very, very serious. I'm not saying conflicts aren't serious, but I got to tell you something. The vast majority of the times that I am ticked off at Keith, it has nothing to do with him sinning against me. It has nothing to do with us disagreeing and not being able to make a decision. It's just simply that I'm ticked off. (laughs) Honestly, I'm just ticked off. And often there are things in our lives which make us more susceptible to being ticked off. Like when we're really tired, when we're really hungry, when we're just too busy. For me, that's such a big thing. Then he can do something and it sets me off. One of the examples that I gave in Nine Thoughts was one day you can be cleaning up your bedroom and you'll notice his dirty socks on the floor and you pick up those socks and you put them in the hamper and you don't think twice about it. Another day you see those dirty socks on the floor and you just about hit the roof and you're so mad and you start planning in your head all the things that you're going to say to him when he comes home later that day. Now, in both cases, it was the same socks, but your reaction was very different. And there are times when we get more upset, not because he did something different, but because there's something different going on with us. So maybe that second day, we're just in the middle of a really, really, really busy schedule and we feel overwhelmed. And when he leaves his dirty socks there, it's like one more thing on our to-do list, one more thing that we have to do. And that can feel overwhelming sometimes. So I find a lot of the time that I get ticked off, it's not that he's doing anything different. It's just that I'm reacting. I know this week when we were driving, we drove a lot last week when we were away out west in British Columbia and Oregon. There were times where I was just really tired and I found myself snapping at him. And it wasn't that he was being ridiculous. It was that I was just plain tired. And so a lot of these talks that we give about resolving conflict, I think a lot of conflict could just be avoided if we all just recognized what our triggers are for getting ticked off. And that's one of the big thoughts in nine thoughts that can change your marriage. You know, your husband can't make you mad. Sometimes we just have triggers. That doesn't mean your husband doesn't do things that are bad, by the way. It's just that he can't control your emotions. (laughs) That's something that we choose to do. And sometimes we just get ticked off. But then there's other kinds of conflict. There is the conflict where you're truly disagreeing about something. And then there's the conflict where your husband has done something wrong. Or your wife, if you're a man listening to me, thank you. I welcome you here too. But where there has been some sin and you need to walk through that forgiveness. So you've discovered he's been spending a lot of money and racking up credit card debt without telling you. 
uh, he's been watching porn, all of these types of things. And that's a very different situation as well than just not being able to agree. And I remember looking at these conflict talks and finding when we were trying to prepare them years ago, that a lot of this stuff just didn't seem to work because whenever I thought of conflict, I was thinking of all these three different kinds because we were always supposed to cover how to own your emotions and communicate effectively, bring up one issue at a time, use I statements. I feel upset when you leave socks on the floor, not you are a really lazy slob for leaving socks on the floor, that kind of thing. Using correct body language. But when you're just simply ticked off because you're tired, a lot of that doesn't really apply. And even when you're disagreeing, some of that doesn't apply. Or else we were taught how to listen effectively to your spouse's concerns and show them that you hear them and that you understand them. Again, really important if you're talking about a specific issue, like I'm feeling like um, we're not connecting right now, but not necessarily important if you're talking just about a little trigger for conflict how to control your anger, how to forgive, etc. And so we would we would make up these stories, well not make up, but we would find stories to put in at each of these points and we would get this talk together which we thought was pretty good, but I never quite felt like it worked because we were talking about all these different things. When I wrote Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage, I finally figured out what the problem was and why I had such a hard time squishing all my different thoughts about resolving conflict into one talk. And the problem, basically, in a nutshell, is that we call way too many things conflict that need to be resolved. And we're blowing some things out of proportion by calling them conflict, but we're minimizing other things at the same time. So when we think of conflict, we think of an issue about which you disagree, or we think of someone feeling upset because they're not connecting. You know, he sees the world one way and you see the world another way. And in those situations, it totally makes sense trying to figure out how to come to a decision and how to learn to listen to each other's point of view. But these kind of disagreements really are rather rare. Usually I'm just getting ticked off. Like I counted it up. And in our marriage, we've had five major disagreements. Uh, We disagreed on what house to buy when we first moved to our little small town. And by the way, Keith was totally right on that one and I was totally off base. Um, We disagreed on whether or not to continue homeschooling. On that one, I was totally right, and he was the one who was off base. (laughs) We disagreed on whether or not to change churches, and that one we just came to the same decision but at different times. We disagreed on whether or not to put our son on the heart transplant list when he was very sick, and we had trouble figuring out our schedules earlier when Keith was working. In four of the five cases, we eventually just came to an agreement together. Like I said, in the first one, we just realized that I was totally out of my gourd and he was totally right. And I'm so grateful we didn't do things uh, my way. And then in another case with our son, the issue just resolved itself because other things popped up. But just because there's only five times we've had a genuine disagreement, that doesn't mean that there's only five times we've been upset at each other because of these triggers that can cause me to get ticked off. And that's when the big revelation comes in. Most of the time that we're ticked off at each other, it's not a big conflict. It really isn't. It's just a simple misunderstanding and something is triggering grumpiness. And so this doesn't usually require, you know, using I statements and listening to each other's point of view. It usually just requires some time and taking some major chill pills. Okay, (laughs) like you just need to understand these are my triggers and I'm not going to let them bother me. Here's another problem with the typical resolving conflict model. Forgiveness and reconciliation. 
They're always a huge part of the resolving conflict talk. Yet it wasn't necessary for Keith and me to forgive each other when we were trying to decide if Katie should take piano lessons or if we should switch churches. It was simply a difference of opinion. There was nothing to forgive. There are times we need to forgive, but those generally aren't about disagreements. Those are about breaches of trust. And so I have a new theory about conflicts, which I've included in Nine Thoughts, that helps us figure out what the appropriate action is. Essentially, when we're upset with each other, the cause is usually one of three things. Either it's silly conflicts where we misunderstand each other, things trigger us, we assume the worst, or we just get grumpy. There's serious conflicts when we disagree about an important matter, and there's sinful conflicts where someone has broken trust. And by framing resolving conflict as something you do to find a resolution, we treat silly conflicts like they're way more important than they really are. Like, seriously, just just take a chill pill, you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, usually these can be solved with an attitude shift by the one who is offended or by changing the way we act or react towards each other. But by framing resolving conflict as something that needs both of you to negotiate, we also downplay sinful conflicts. And we treat them as if both spouses need to listen to each other and to defer to each other. But in most cases, one spouse has broken trust and that spouse has to rebuild it. Yes, there may be some underlying issues in marriage that must be dealt with, but that can only be done after the sinning spouse has truly repented and started taking more action. So I think when there's conflict, it's important to understand which of these three things you fall in. And I want today, really briefly, to talk about that second category. Okay, so we're going to ignore the, the just getting ticked off. Um, and we're going to ignore the sinful conflicts. Both of those things are covered in Nine Thoughts that Can Change Your Marriage, by the way. But this is the really big insight that I want to give you, all right? Usually, when you disagree about something, the reason that you can't agree and the reason that we get into such silly arguments is because we don't understand what the real issue is. Here's an example that I used in my book. A woman writes into the blog and says, I'm seven months pregnant with twins and I'm feeling exhausted. We have a toddler. I'm running off my feet. I'm supposed to be on bed rest, but I'm just really tired and I have too much to do. And at the same time, my husband has decided that now is a great time to buy a house. He's found one that's relatively affordable. He wants us to get on good financial footing, but I'm telling him I do not have the mental or physical energy to do this right now. I'm so overwhelmed and he won't listen to me. And we're just fighting about this. Now, when you hear that story, how do you define the issue? See, what she was doing and what that couple was doing was they were saying the issue is, are we going to buy a house? But as soon as you've defined the issue that way, then you've said that one person is going to win and one person is going to lose. So either they're not going to buy the house and she's going to win or they are going to buy the house and he's going to win. And often that's what we do when we approach conflict where one where we're trying to make a decision and we're disagreeing is we frame the issue in terms of who is going to get their way. Okay, it's called position based negotiation. Here is my stance and I am not moving and there is your stance and you are not moving. And now we have to try to pull and push each other so that we get the other person on our side. And as soon as we do that, we start seeing each other as the enemy and even if you do reach an agreement, it's likely that there's going to be a lot of animosity. And so here is the big insight that I want you to have and I want you to remember. When you're having a disagreement like that, stop. And instead of debating what you think is the issue, ask yourself this question. What is it that I need right now? If you both ask yourself that question, what is it that I need right now? You might find something really interesting. 
because she might say, I am just feeling so overwhelmed. I need to feel like I'm going to be okay when the babies come and that I'm going to be able to look after my family. And he might say, I'm feeling really overwhelmed and a lot of pressure and I want to know that I am being responsible and caring for my family. Those are both legitimate things. Okay, those are both very, very legitimate needs. She needs to feel like she's being a good mom and that she's being responsible. He needs to feel like he's being responsible. As soon as you say the needs in those ways, now something interesting happens. If you both have legitimate needs, then you can both figure out how to meet each other's needs. So he could say, wow, you're feeling really overworked and you're feeling overwhelmed. I totally get that. Let's ask some of our wider community for help. You know, let's tell them we could really use some freezer meals. We've got twins coming. It's totally legitimate to go to your aunts, your sisters, your mom, our church family and say, hey, can we get put on the meal list? It's totally okay to say to our friends, could you come look after our toddler just for one afternoon so that my wife can take a nap? Like, let's get a schedule together where we're making sure that you get the rest you need. And she could say, you know what, your desire for us to have financial stability is totally, totally good. And I completely respect that. So let's look at how I can help encourage you and how I can help support you so that you can get a raise at work. So let's look at our budget again and see if we can cut down on some of our expenses. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do. And often when you do that, you'll figure out a solution you never thought about. Um, one of the things that Keith and I shared at the Family Life Canada Marriage Conference was a situation similar to this that we had. The girls were very young. They were probably about six and eight at the time. I was homeschooling them, but I had also had my first book contract and I was trying to get some work done. My husband um, was on call probably three nights a week, which meant that he was often up all night. He had a full, busy office practice five days a week, and he was feeling completely burnt out and overwhelmed. And he came to me one day and he said, I feel like I don't have enough fun in my life, and I would really like to get together with some of my friends. And this is going to sound really nerdy, okay? But my husband would play miniature war games with miniature soldiers. They would create battles and recreate things from the Roman times or the American Civil War or whatever. And this was something he needed, but I was feeling, so you're going to take another night of the week away from me to be with your friends when I don't even have time in the week to write, which I feel is my calling. And so I felt like he was saying, your calling doesn't matter. And he felt like I was saying, I don't care that you're burnt out. And we fought about this for a long time because we framed the issue as, does Keith get to take a night of the week to himself? And that was the wrong thing to do. And finally, we stepped back from the situation and we said, it is totally legitimate for Sheila to need time to write, but it's also totally legitimate for Keith to need time with his friends. And we came up with a different solution, which was he just closed his office at one day a week. It cost us some money, but we decided that we would rather have time than money. And luckily, we were living in a really small house at the time, so our expenses weren't that high, and we were able to take that income cut. I know that not everyone is able to do that, but that's what we decided to do when we looked at the situation. We said, both of us have legitimate needs, so let's brainstorm a way to meet them. And if we hadn't done that, if we had just kept looking at the issue of, can Keith take time another night a week away, then one of us would have had to win and one of us would have had to lose. But instead, we saw it as a win-win situation. 
So that's why Keith and I have stopped resolving conflict, all right? <laughs> because usually when we talk about resolving conflict, we're talking about, you know, how do we make a decision? How do we deal with it when we see something in a different way? And we've stopped doing that because instead of trying to, to make one win and one lose, we just talk about our needs and then we brainstorm ways to meet them. And then at the same time, we try to recognize when we have really silly triggers making us ticked off. And when there's sinful things, we deal with them in a different way. But I want to encourage you, you know, next time you're fighting over an issue, ask yourself, am I framing the issue in a way that one of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose? Or instead, can we step back and say, what is it that we need from this situation? Because when you do that and frame it in a different way, suddenly a win-win will open up to you. Are you part of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community? Sign up for my emails and you'll get weekly Friday updates with behind-the-scenes pictures and info, exclusive video content, stuff I'm wrestling with, and more. You'll also get access to our free resource library with over 25 marriage and parenting freebies, my free five-day sex pep talk, and more. Sign up on the homepage at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. Are millennials facing a crisis in depression and anxiety? That's what I want to talk about today on Millennial Marriage. And my millennial daughter, Rebecca, is here. Hello. And I know this is something that you're really interested in, but let me just read you a couple of stats from an article that I found recently, which I thought was fascinating. So what they were saying was that if you look at different generations, millennials are hugely more likely to suffer from um, anxiety, depression, major trauma, etc. And um, they they decided to say, well, is it just that millennials are more likely to report it and seek help? But mm-hmm. no, when they looked at suicide rates, even suicide rates were a lot higher. Um, I got to find the exact number. I think it was like 56%, but I could be making that up. Hold on. <laughs> I am looking. Oh, it is. It's 56%. I shouldn't be happy about that. I'm happy I got the statistic right. I'm not happy about the results. Okay. <laughs> so it says um, the suicide rate among 18 to 19 year olds climbed 56% from 2008 to 2017. Other behaviors related to depression have also increased, including emergency department admissions for self-harm. So this is really a crisis. Completely. Yeah. And um, one other thing. But what I really want to talk about is their conclusions, and and I know you have some thoughts on this. Okay, so what they said was, okay, so if we know this is true, let's take a look at why. And so they looked at all the possible reasons, and they said, well, it isn't job loss or a bad economy, because actually the economy was getting better um, between 2011 and 2017, when a lot of these markers went up. It's unlikely that academic pressure was the cause because teens spend less time on homework on average than teens did in the 1990s. And although the increase in mental health issues occurred around the same time as the opioid epidemic, that crisis seemed to almost exclusively affect adults older than 25. But there was one societal shift over the past decade that influenced the lives of today's teens and young adults more than any other generation. And why don't you tell us what it is? I'm sure I'm wondering if our readers or our listeners can guess it, but why don't you tell us what it is? Cell phones. (laughs) Smartphones and digital media. So what is going on? Like, why, why does that have such a tremendous effect on depression and anxiety? Well, I was a university student who studied psychology, and we talked about technology and the effects that they have on teenagers quite a bit. because this is, of course, what most people are really excited about talking because I think, man, if we can figure out what the problem is, maybe we can kind of hijack the whole system and help our 15-year-olds not get depressed. 
Mm -hmm. Right? And honestly, what a lot of my profs were saying, which the more I think about it and the more I've kind of tried to implement boundaries and different habits in my personal life, I actually very much think this is quite wise, is they said it's not necessarily the increased use of cell phones as much as the fact that when you use cell phones more, you don't do healthy things as often, right? So we're on Facebook, we're not walking down the road to Mary's house to see if she wants to, you know, watch the latest episode of something together. You're Mm -hmm. binging it at home alone. You know, even the fact that you can binge something for 30 hours without spending $60 on the box set. Yeah, you know, one thing, one thing that always got me about you and Katie is how little time you spent on the phone. I know you did Skype friends. Yeah, and I spent a lot of time on the phone when I was 10 and 11 Mm -hmm. before I got a cell phone or before my friends got cell phones. Yeah, but my entire teenagehood was spent on the phone. I can still remember my best friend's phone numbers from 30 years ago because I dialed them so often. Like, I can still do it without thinking, you know? Um, But you guys just never spent time on phones. Mm -hmm. Never. And and so I think that 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 not building relationships in the same way does affect our mental health and especially I know I know there's all kinds of stuff about social media and and that certainly is something to get into but you know the bigger issue I think is how can we encourage our teenagers to still have good relationships yeah because that's the thing we can focus on how horrible social media is or how damaging these things are but at the end of the day you know we're not going to take down social media that just is the world now You know, Mm -hmm. we're just not. So the question isn't how can we make social media not harm our kids as much as how can we teach our kids that there's more to life than social media? I think that's the important question. And I think a lot of it has to do with simply being the kind of family who does stuff that is outside of technology, like going camping. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, go to the library and like get books when your kids are little. Mm-hmm. So that they know that entertainment doesn't just have to come through a screen. Yeah, don't read books on your Kindle with toddlers. They really need those board books. Yeah. They really do. You know, Kids need to learn to flip pages and to have to do the imagination themselves and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. But I also think with teenagers, too. I mean, there are so many things for teenagers to do. You know, they can get jobs. Honestly, getting jobs are some of the best self-esteem boosting things that you can do when you're in high school. Because you feel competent. You make your own money. You can buy yourself something, something that you earned. Like, it, it's, it's a huge help, I think. And a lot of studies yeah. have also shown that things that boost your competence can really help with a lot of other, um, they, they help as pre- preventative factors for a lot of teenagers. Right. And I think there are some basic things that I often recommend too. One is just having dinner at a table where cell phones are not welcome. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's difficult for it a is. lot of people. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just sitting at a table and talking face to face, that's a tremendous thing. And I know the research was out on that even when, um, when I was parenting back in the nineties, but it's even more so today. And so have dinner with your kids. And another thing that I think is so important too, is I think it's a great idea to have a charging station in the kitchen for all the iPads, devices, phones at night so that your phone doesn't come into the bedroom with you. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, we, we didn't do that as a family. And I will tell you, there were many days that I was up until two in the morning, like Facebook messaging with people. I know, and I wish that I had now. Now, we were we had a lot of things that we were doing outside of the home, and so we weren't really the high risk for this kind of thing. We we had a quite 
mm-hmm. quite full social life and work life and just general hobbies and stuff. But in general, yeah. Yeah, if I could do it over again, I would have done that. Now, I know if when families get rid of landlines, parents do need a phone in their bedroom just in case there's an emergency. You know, mm-hmm. grandma calls because grandpa's had a stroke or something, okay? <laughs> so, so I understand, you know, needing a phone, needing one phone in a parent's bedroom. But I think all kids' devices should be down in the kitchen. And that way, you know, that, that deals with a lot of porn issues too because they can't access pornography at night, you know, all kinds of things. Um I know some parents will even change the Wi-Fi password every day. <laughs> kids can't get the password until they do their chores or whatever. But, you know, like we need to stop seeing tech cell phones as a right and mm-hmm. start seeing them that I, I do think that, you know, uh, they're necessary in the sense that they help our kids stay safe. They help our kids. The, we're able to get a hold of our kids, but the kids don't need to be attached to them 24 hours a day. And yeah. that's up to parents to stop. Well, and I think that's an important point, too. And this is something that, you know, I get worried when I see my generation turning into parents as well, where it's what kind of example are we setting for our kids, right? So a lot of the these kids are talking about who have these major anxiety or depression issues that they do think may be very linked to cell phones or technology. I mean, a lot of us also did have parents who modeled similar behavior because but technology was new to them so they didn't grow up with it so they didn't have the same long-lasting issues because it didn't come around during their formative years right Mm -hmm, because how mm -hmm. can you expect your kid to not want to be on their phone all the time if you're on facebook and pinterest for eight hours a day exactly so there we go people take some control back because cell phones really are affecting your teens so thank you becca for joining us um and tune in next week for another edition of millennial marriage Can you think your way to a great marriage? Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage shows how we often think wrongly about submission, sex, conflict, even anger, and how changing how you think can actually change how you feel and act, too. Don't settle for an okay marriage. Get a great marriage with Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. And today's reader question is from Instagram. A woman messaged me and said, is it wrong to want my husband to post about me? He says he does not like social media, but will post about his own projects to show them off. He posted one picture of me ever when we were dating. The rest is always me tagging him and stuff. Even all of our wedding pictures. I post stuff about him sometimes. Is it wrong to want him to be proud of me and show me off? Okay, I just thought this this question went so well with our main segment today, so I wanted to address it. First of all, I think her question is the wrong one, because what she's saying is, is it wrong for me to want my husband to post social media pictures of me? But that's not the issue. The issue here is that she would feel loved if he posted social media pictures of of her, but that isn't something that he naturally does. And so the issue is not whether or not he's posting social media pictures. The issue is how she feels loved. And for whatever reason, he doesn't really understand that this is important to her. And this often happens is that something really resonates with us and we tell our spouse this, but because it doesn't resonate with them, they don't realize how serious the issue is to us. Or because they see the world in a totally different way, they think that we're just crazy. And we do this to our spouses too. This isn't a male-female thing, okay? (laughs) I mean, we all are guilty of this to a certain extent. And so here she is, and one of her love languages, in whatever way you want to put it, is this words of affirmation or having other people see how much he loves her. And that's just not in his repertoire. 
that's not how he sees social media. For him, social media is about him bragging about his own stuff, about his projects, but to brag about his wife may feel kind of weird. It's kind of like how in some cultures, any kind of physical contact between couples out in public is taboo. You just wouldn't do that. Whereas other in other cultures, it's very normal to have physical contact between couples. If you feel that physical contact is normal and you go to one of these countries or you marry someone from a culture where physical contact in public is not normal, then you can start to feel like they don't really want other people to know about our relationship or they're embarrassed to put their feelings about me because he'll never hold my hand in public or he'll never give me a hug in public. But that could just simply be how he sees physical contact. And it could be also that her husband just doesn't see um, social media as being used that way and that would make him feel uncomfortable. So it likely has nothing to do with whether or not he really is proud of her, but instead just our cultures and how we feel around social media and how we feel about public display of affection. So what should she do? I think a great exercise to go through for every couple is from a post that I wrote a while ago on 25 ways to show your husband love. And it wasn't really about just showing your husband love. It was actually an exercise that I encourage couples to do together, where you sit down and you just make a list of 20 to 25 things that your spouse could do that would make you feel loved. Kind of along the love languages idea, but a little bit more in depth than that. And the key thing is that you have to think about these things and they have to be under five minutes. Like ideally they shouldn't take more than two or three minutes. They should be virtually free or very, very inexpensive and they should have nothing to do with sex. Okay. So this is just, this is just little gestures that somebody could make to show me love. An example could be something like when you come in the door, kiss me before you go and do anything else. Or when I come in the door, get stop whatever you're doing and come and greet me at the door. Okay, just a very simple gesture, but it communicates you're important to me, you're a priority to me, and I love you. And that's a great thing for couples to do because quite often we can think we're showing our husband or, or wife love in very small ways, but they're not actually feeling it because that's not something that resonates with them. So if you write up this list of things and she could put... Every couple of weeks, put a picture of me on Facebook or put a picture of us on Facebook and announce something that we did on our date night, right? Doesn't take very long, is free, has nothing to do with sex. So you put this on your list, you exchange lists, and then you just make a commitment every day, I'm going to do two or three things on this list. This isn't meant for you to double check on your husband and grade him or anything to see if he's doing it, but it's just a helpful tool in marriage. And so I would say, instead of asking the question this woman asked, ask instead, this is something that shows me love. How can I communicate its importance to my husband? Because we all have different things that matter to us. And obviously your husband is just not understanding that this is one of those things. So have that conversation. I want to show you love. Let's see how we can sit down and figure this out together. And I'm going to put a link in the podcast extras, um, the post on my blog where I talk about this podcast to that post on 25 ways to show your spouse love so that you can do that exercise too. I like to take a comment or an email that's come in on Facebook or the blog or whatever uh, and just highlight it and comment on it a little bit. And this one comes from Facebook. I had written a Facebook post, which I totally worded wrong. Sometimes I do this. I had jet lag. I'm sorry. But I said, the church hasn't preached enough that it's better to be single than to be married with someone with bad character. 
from a discussion that I was just having with my daughter Katie about how her generation views marriage. Do we still push marriage so much that people often make really bad marriage choices? And do we need to give people the freedom to say no more often? What do you think? So I said that what I really should have said was not the church hasn't preached enough that it's better to be single than to be married to someone with bad character. I should have said our Christian culture doesn't seem to promote that. But anyway, I worded it wrong and a woman replied, I don't notice the church pushing marriage over being single. I like this page, but sometimes it can come across as very condemning of the church, which I love being part of. And I do want to comment on that because this is something that I've been feeling too, is like lately, ugh, I just, I feel like I've been in the mud and I'm in all of this muck of all of this gross stuff that is going on in our Christian culture. And I hate it. Like, I really hate it. I've been writing about the sexual abuse scandal in the Southern Baptist Church and about how to handle sexual abuse allegations in the church. I've been doing this whole series on the terrible ways that the church has taught about sex and taught about how it's all about men's physical release and not about a mutual joining of two people that is intimate on every level. I had to take a week in January and deconstruct the Love and Respect book, which was just so damaging. And you're right, it does feel like I'm often attacking the church. And so I want to I comment on this because I do want to clarify what it is that I'm doing. First of all, I love Jesus. I really, truly love Jesus. I think that Jesus is the answer to our deepest heart cries. And I know that it was Jesus who carried me when my son died. I know that it was Jesus who was with me as a child when I felt really alone. I know that it was Jesus who helped Keith and me cling together even when we had really difficult marriage stuff like losing a son. I know it was Jesus who has answered so many of my prayers and just been with me in ways that I can't even fully express because sometimes it's the Holy Spirit doing a really cool thing in your life that you can't even explain, you just know it's there. And I have been part of some wonderful Christian communities. Right now, I'm in a great church. We were in some more difficult church situations in the past, but we found a really good church. My kids are in great churches, and I'm so grateful for them. I do believe that we need to be in wonderful Christian community and that most of our problems can really only be solved if we are in good Christian community. But at the same time, what I am seeing again and again and again on the blog is people sending in emails and comments where they're in such crises. And I read this stuff and it's like, I want to help you. I really do. But more important than that, I want to figure out how we can stop this stuff from happening in the first place. And the more I've gotten into this, because I've been blogging for 10 years now, and believe me, my blogging has changed over the 10 years. And a lot of that is because I've realized that I can't help people without addressing the cultural issues that are causing a lot of these problems. And a lot of those cultural issues are things in the church that we do wrong. I talked about this on Tuesday this week when I looked at 10 questions that you should ask biblical counselors, because biblical counselors are different from licensed Christian therapists, okay? I am totally on board with seeing a Christian therapist but a biblical counselor, they're not necessarily the same thing. And there's some things that we do in the church community that are just toxic. The way we have not handled sexual abuse properly in the church. The way that we have taught about sex in such a wrong way. The way the purity culture has messed up so many people. And so if it seems like I'm beating up on the church, I really don't mean to. And that's not my intention. I see it not as me beating up on the church, meaning the body of Christ, but instead, 
me saying there are elements of our Christian culture that are wrong and are really off base and I want to bring us back to Jesus. So I'm sorry if I ever don't say that properly. I really don't mean to seem so critical. I'm just really burdened by what everyone's going through. And I know that this isn't what Jesus has for us. Jesus wants us to live a big life, a big life in freedom, a life where we really can embrace passion and intimacy. And I hope I can point you all there. I do believe that real passion and intimacy is only found in Christ and that our our best psychological well-being will be found in true Christian community. I'm just not sure that all actual churches offer that right now. And so I encourage you to be just a little bit skeptical of the church community you're in. Ask important questions. Make sure that, that your church community is not contributing to the problem. Speak up when you see stuff that's wrong. Like I said about love and respect, if your church is offering that as a study, speak up and say, that's just not right. Let's challenge stuff. But I do believe we need the body of Christ. And I hope and pray that all of you are in a good church situation where you really do feel like you're part of that body. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of the Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, where we look at how to make marriage feel more like an exciting adventure and less of a to-do list. I hope today I've given you new ways of thinking about resolving conflict and talking about what it is that you really need in marriage. But don't forget to check out the blog at tolovehonorandvacuum.com, where I put a bunch of extras up every week to go along with the podcast. And remember to rate the podcast five stars and leave a review wherever you subscribe. That would help me so much. Thanks, and I'll be back next week to finish up our long series on how to be a generous lover.